welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Environmental justice, a concept at the crossroads of environmental protection and social justice, dates back to the civil rights movement. It is defined by the Environmental Protection Agency as the fair treatment and meaningful involvement of all people, regardless of race, color, national origin, or income, with respect to the development, implementation, and enforcement of environmental laws, regulations, and policies. Interest and urgency in advancing environmental justice, or EJ, has gained new momentum in recent years. The Biden-Harris administration has placed an unprecedented federal focus on environmental justice using a whole-of-government approach including issuing executive orders demanding accountability and action from a broad list of federal agencies. In addition, a growing list of states continue to develop, implement, and enforce EJ-focused legislation, accelerated by the intensity at the federal level. In today's episode of the Ground Truth podcast series, Stacey Halliday of Beverage and Diamond will explore what's to come for environmental justice in 2022, with two EJ leaders at the Environmental Protection Agency. Charles Lee, Senior Policy Advisor, and Matthew Tejada, the Director of the Office of Environmental Justice. Charles and Matthew will share perspectives from their senior roles at EPA, how far the agency has come, how to contextualize the change that we are currently seeing, key goals for 2022, and best practices for those trying to incorporate EJ considerations into their work. Stacey, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Heather. I'm Stacey Halliday, shareholder at Beverage and Diamond, co-chair of the firm's Environmental Justice Practice Group, and a former Obama appointee at the United States Environmental Protection Agency's Office of General Counsel, where I had the privilege of working with Charles and Matthew. I had an opportunity to chat with each of these subject matter experts to get their perspectives on recent developments and what they think lies ahead for environmental justice. As Heather mentioned, Charles Lee currently serves as the Senior Policy Advisor for Environmental Justice at EPA where he leads the development and implementation of EPA's agency-wide environmental justice strategic plan. He's been a leader in the EJ movement for over three decades. In 1987, when the term environmental justice has not yet come in parlance, Mr. Lee served as the principal author of the seminal report, Toxic Waste and Race in the United States, the first national study to examine the relationship between the geography and demographics of hazardous waste sites. He also organized the first National People of Color Environmental Leadership Summit. Matthew Tejada has served as the Director of EPA's Office of Environmental Justice, or OEJ, since 2013. As Director of OEJ, Matthew is responsible for overseeing not only the work of the office, but all of EPA's EJ efforts across the agency. Before his career at EPA, Matthew spent over five years in the nonprofit world as Executive Director of the Environmental Advocacy Group, Air Alliance Houston, where he focuses efforts on EJ issues affecting communities in the Houston, Texas, Gulf Coast areas including region-wide ozone reduction policies and alleviation of toxic and particulate matter hotspots. So we'd like to use this episode to share key insights from what we've gleaned from each of our distinguished guests, starting with a retrospective look on where we've been in the environmental justice space. Both Matthew and Charles have the helpful perspective of years of EJ practitioners and witnesses to EPA's evolution in this space over time. So we asked them, what's changed? Is this time truly transformational? And, And got their thoughts. So let's see what they had to say. Charles, thank you so much for joining us. You have been involved in the environmental justice movement since the very beginning. 
For our listeners' benefit, Charles was the primary author on the landmark study, Toxic Waste and Race in the United States, in 1987, which provided the first concrete data on disproportionate impacts and showed the correlation between race and the siting of toxic waste. Since then, a lot has happened. <laughs> what are your thoughts, Charles, on, on how environmental justice has progressed in the United States since the late 80s, and how has EPA's role and perspective changed, uh, even at the agency? Boy, that's a big question. Thank you for the <laughs> question, Stacy. And uh, I guess that's a, a question spanning um, a lifetime almost now. You know, back in 1987, uh, my main uh, goal in terms of doing a report like Toxic Waste and Race was really to uh, put the issue on the map because at that time, uh, most people um, did not even know what environmental justice is. And if you talked about the fact that communities of color uh, and poor communities and uh, tribal indigenous communities were more um, were impacted disproportionately uh, in terms of environmental harms and risk. Everybody would uh, look at you with a blank stare. Uh, you know, people did not even know that uh, such an issue in terms of the environment and how it impacted people, particularly certain groups of people, you know, was a really an issue and. You know, I like to say, you know, when I first started on this issue, it was um, it didn't really have a name. Environmental justice didn't have a name. And so if you fast forward to now, there's such an incredible sea change, both in terms of uh, the uh, ways that people understand and accept the fact that, you know, the concentration of environmental burdens within certain communities and the lack of environmental amenities in those communities is a real policy issue. In fact, uh, as we all know now, it is one of the central policy questions for the Biden-Harris administration. You know, that came about with a, with a lot of work that went into it. You know, the ways that this has changed is, uh, first of all, the fact that those communities are very much at the center of how to shape that agenda with the you know establishment of the White House uh, Environmental Justice Advisory Council and um, the strong uh, voice of uh, environmental justice leaders in helping to uh, provide recommendations and, like I said, uh, shape this agenda. You know, on an intellectual level, in terms of like knowledge about disproportionate environmental uh, burdens and benefits, I mean, there's just so much more of an understanding of what that is. And like I said, in terms of the mainstream consciousness of Americans, that there's a knowledge and the acceptance that this is a real, a serious issue, that this is something that cannot be ignored. You know, we now know that, you know, when uh, we did uh, Toxic Waste and Race back in 1987, there were a handful of studies on the issue. And now there's like hundreds, if not thousands of peer-reviewed journal articles. There are university courses being taught in, I guess, in dozens, if not hundreds of universities now. And so that's a that's one on one level. On an institutional level, issue is one of the uh, centerpieces at the very heart of the Biden-Harris agenda. An issue that's being embraced on, uh, in other governmental entities like states and local governments. There's been uh, some 40 to more than 40 states since last documented have some kind of policy or or program or activity around uh, environmental justice. So there's been a real interest, and that's not at the federal level, it's a state level, 
And this is something that uh, we're seeing. There's going to be an infusion of financial resources for environmental justice. That's just been seen through um, the funding at the federal level, through the American Rescue Plan, the forthcoming budget, the, in, the infrastructure bill. And, um, and this is an um, uh, unprecedented, um, exponent, almost exponential increase. And here Charles sums it up. Are we uh, witnessing something that's really transformational in terms of uh, societal change with respect to environmental justice? I think I would say that um, I have never seen the kind of infusion of uh, policy attention backed by financial resources and the kind of uh, programming that's uh, taking place. Uh, I have never seen that before. I have never seen calling out the issues for what they are in terms of the roots of environmental injustice being rooted in things like systemic racism and openly uh, kind of acknowledging and confronting that. Uh, I have never seen that before in my my whole career. So those are just some of the examples about whether or not uh, this is a transformational moment in terms of environmental justice and the history of the nation. Matthew also shared reflections on how EPA's approach to EJ has evolved during his tenure at the agency. From the original executive order that President Clinton signed back in 1994, Executive Order 12898, all the way through the executive orders that President Biden has signed uh, since his time in office, even including executive orders signed on his first day in office, uh, it has always been uh, a clear mandate that Uh, all parts of the federal government, um, but especially EPA, really look to integrate environmental justice considerations across everything that we do, whether that is in a permitting context or rulemakings, our enforcement and compliance efforts, uh, emergency or disaster response, uh, engaging with communities, allocation of resources. Um, For 30 years, we've been working to advance the practice of environmental justice across everything uh, that EPA does. So so we really look at that effort from within the EJ program as, well, we have to advocate amongst our colleagues for them to really understand and operationalize what does EJ mean for them. Uh, And we've had a lot of progress over that uh, over the years in advancing that practice. Um, But it's really today I think in the Biden-Harris administration and with the leadership of Administrator Regan, where for the first time, uh, EPA is taking up the hardest pieces of that work, really looking at, okay, what does cumulative impacts mean in a permitting scenario? Really looking at, in a rule, you know, fundamental decisions that we have to weigh uh, when we're determining which rules or how to, how to approach different rules. As both Matthew and Charles mentioned, we've come a long way in terms of environmental justice, especially at the federal level. EPA recently released its draft strategic plan, which really showcases this progress. Matthew explained a bit more about the significance of the strategic plan. I think this is a huge shift for the agency, just having environment, well, in a couple ways, right? Having a goal in the strategic plan on environmental justice is a, is a big deal. 
Um, I've I've had to work really hard in previous iterations of the agency's overall multi-year strategic plan just to get a couple sentences on EJ in there. We would hang our entire program on just two sentences in the strategic plan because um, you need that. And that's one of the things from the outside, right? A lot of folks look at these strategic plans. They're like, oh, my Lord. But once you get inside of the agency, these multi-year strategic plans like that is what dictates what goes into people's annual performance agreements and their performance reviews. It, what, it's what dictates what goes into budget requests. It's what dictates, you know, the sorts of numbers and data and reporting that we share with Congress. I, these, these strategic plans are just that. It's, it determines what the agency is going to do for the next few years. So having a goal central in that strategic plan that is not just about the EJ program, but is about what EPA overall has to do to move the ball on environmental justice is, that in and of itself is, is unprecedented and is a, a huge opportunity for the EJ program. The, the second facet of that is that this administration, I think for the first time, um, is really lifting up what a lot of folks on the outside have been demanding and, and, and pointing at for a long time, the relationship between the environmental justice program and our external civil rights compliance program. So that's Title VI and other civil rights uh, statutes, you know, the actual compliance by EPA and by anybody that receives funding from EPA with those civil rights laws. There's, there's a huge relationship there and through the strategic plan, I think um, the administration is very clearly signaling that um, we're going to bring these two programs together, uh, not, to, not to merge them. Um, we still have very unique uh, and, and important things that we do individually as an EJ program and an external civil rights program. Um, you know, they've made a lot of progress over the last few years taking care of a lot of the problems that people very rightly pointed to for a long time, such as the backlog of cases, um, that has been ameliorated. So we're, we're, for the first time in EPA's history, really able to look at a clean deck and say, all right, now we need to actually start doing the hard work of bringing our programs together in new and powerful ways to really help center the mission of the agency on advancing equity, justice, and rights across everything that we do. Charles also weighed in on the significance of the plan and what it means for EPA. It is not just any ordinary document. It is the, the, the document that most that federal agencies use to hold themselves accountable uh, to the kind of um, long-term goals and transformational changes that uh, they see as necessary. So a couple of things about this is the strategic plan actually um, Put, a, put forth a new principle in terms of how the EPA should carry out its mission of protecting human health and the environment. You know, uh, heretofore, it's always been the rule of law, sound science, and transparency, and now there's achieving justice and equity as part of that. So that's the principle. That goes right into what the DNA of EPA should be in, as far as, like, the ways that EPA should carry out its business. So that's one thing. And of course, you know, a second thing is the fact that uh, environmental justice um, and civil rights has become a strategic goal. And so before a strategic plans focus on strategic goals that were 
more oriented towards things like um, uh, air, water, or uh, or uh, or land, or toxics, and these more media-oriented type of uh, uh, programs. But now there are uh, you know these cross-cutting strategic goals uh, like environmental justice and civil rights or climate change, addressing climate change, and the, and you know it is worth noting that. Um, we are not just talking about just doing environmental justice, but we're talking about doing environmental justice alongside of our obligation to carry out our civil rights responsibilities. In your view, how do you see climate justice and climate issues and the climate goals, the very ambitious ones that this administration has put forward, intersecting with environmental justice as we look ahead to 2022? What's the difference in climate justice and environmental justice? And how, how do these things work together? I don't really see them as uh, uh, fundamentally being different. You know, the uh, issues of the environmental justice, you know, looks at a very holistic, uh, takes a very holistic approach towards understanding the um, environment and health of the of communities and, you know, looks at them in terms of uh, their ability to be healthy and sustainable and just um, and resilient. And so just uh, climate justice may just be a, you know, a a subset of that, but a very important component of that that actually kind of interacts with all the other things, especially given the fact that the nature of climate change um, and climate change being, as everyone, you know, now realizes is an existential issue, you know, it's going to have a much more uh, greater impact in terms of, uh, you know, how all parts of our uh, environment and daily lives, um, you know, are going to be, uh, are going to take place and, you know, how we're going to have to do business. So I don't see them as being separate. Uh, I see them maybe as having somewhat different focuses, but, you know, but clearly, you know, the issues of climate and other other environmental issues uh, and other public health issues um, other issues related to infrastructure, uh, and you can go on down the line, all gonna, are going to merge together. And, you know, the paradigm shift is probably going to be how do we address them all together. We also spoke with Charles and Matthew about the role of data in EPA's approach to environmental justice. As monitoring and data have been a real central part of the Biden administration's platform and, and approach to achieving its goals with environmental justice. So how do you see the role of big data helping the agency achieve its goals? How, what do you see ahead in that space? You know, I mean, I think the, uh, to back up a little bit, um, it was the ability to have uh, demographic data uh, in large data sets and the ability to have environmental data in large data sets uh, that actually gave rise uh, or was one of the things that gave rise to the environmental justice issue as far as uh, people's ability to understand, to perceive and understand it, you know. I mean, a report like Toxic Waste and Race would not have been uh, possible without, you know, that possible, without those uh, that, those types of data sets. Uh, and, you know, a lot more of the kind of other studies which have become increasingly more uh, sophisticated and uh, you know, would not have been possible without, you know, those types of data sets. And I think we're just building on that. You know, the tools like EJ Screen and 
talent virus screening at uh, the state level and other state tools, um, you know, are going to make use of this. Um, and the more I see, I see the, the these being um, incorporated into these uh, mapping tools, and you know, in in ways that are um, going to make them more uh, accurate and sophisticated and able to account for factors that uh, we really need. How how to uh, there's a you know a lot of challenges um, in terms of how to kind of uh, make sure that um, you know we're keeping on top of this. But I see um, big data as being a really positive thing in terms of uh, then the advancing these these tools. Matthew also had some important impressions and, and thoughts on the role of data in environmental justice. Yeah, I mean, I'm a I'm a huge advocate for data. I'm a huge believer in data. The the power of 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 taking information and making it transparent, but also making it meaningful, making it kind of graspable by um, by folks for different purposes, whether it's you know folks in the federal government or other levels of government, state and local or tribal levels, or just community members. Right? Data can be so powerful for so many things. It can drive behavior change, it can drive accountability. Um, so I think one of the things that we're, we're very focused on is, you know, there's a lot of development we can do with EJ Screen. There's a lot of things folks have been asking for since EJ Screen was first released back in 2015, that for the first time we have, you know, both um, the leadership that is urging us to advance tools such as EJ Screen, as well as you know, a little bit of money so that we can actually pay for those things to happen. Um, but we're also cognizant that, you know, EJ Screen, uh, it's not going to do everything, right? EJ Screen does a lot of really important things, um, but but it's not it, it's not a one-stop, you know, uh, out-of-the-box EJ analytical tool. Um, there are other tools we need to create. There are other data sets that we really need to develop um, more consistently across the United States to be able to really analyze for issues of disproportionality, for issues of you know whether whether a, a community is 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 overburdened or is or is, uh, has an excess vulnerability to pollution, um, so that we can take the sort of information we have in EJ Screen, which is really still a screening tool, still to be used kind of at the front end of our work, at the front end of our thinking to help inform engagement, to help inform research, to help inform, you know, an investigation um, and, and to take that sort of data and bring it not only into the center of our thinking so that our decisions, our actions, the allocation of our resources are really based upon that data, but then also to continue and, and drive that data through to the other endpoint, which is, you know, what what is the result of that? What is the outcome of that? Did we change metrics on the ground? Um, so I think there's a real continuum of being able to use um, equity and justice data in really powerful ways that I think this administration um, recognizes and is lifting that up. And one of the things that I know a lot of folks are very excited about is um, for the for the development by the White House of a climate and economic justice screening tool to help support implementation of the Justice 40 initiative. Um, we're very much looking forward to that as well. I think that'll be an exciting new tool out there, a, a very different tool from what EJ Screen is today. Um, and I think we'll see a, 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 a proliferation. I mean, even just this uh, this past summer of 2021, 
you know, our colleagues in the Office of Air and Radiation, they released a new tool that was looking at um, power plant emissions and the impact of power plant emissions from an equity perspective. I think you're going to see a proliferation of these tools. Um, and, and the most exciting part of it is not the tools um, that we will craft at the federal level, because there's always going to be an inherent limitation for national tools, because um, the United States is a big place and it's a diverse place and, and trying to create a tool that looks across the entire United States, it's tougher than most people think unless they've tried it. Um, but, but I think we're seeing, um, you know, states, local governments, um, academic institutions, just communities developing their own tools. And, and when you look at um, the sort of information, the sort of data uh, that that you can get when you go further and further down, closer to the ground. Um, those tools are really exciting. Um, so I think we'll see just a real growth um, year over year in in how people look at these sorts of data, how people look at the visualization or the other tools that can be derived from them, and and also you know the very real and important ways that um, different levels of government or maybe even you know, private industry uh, starts to uh, grapple with the results of these tools and actually change the way we think, change the way we, we behave, change the decisions we take um, based upon what these tools show us. And both Matthew and Charles emphasize the importance of a variety of different stakeholders playing important roles in, in furthering and advancing environmental justice. And I know many of our listeners are, are in-house practitioners trying to think about how they incorporate environmental justice into everyday operations. We do that a lot. That's most of the work that we do with our environmental justice practice at Beverage and Nyman and counsel our clients on how to proceed and incorporate EJ into their work. So we made sure to ask Charles and Matthew what role they see for industry in supporting agency goals for environmental justice and advancing what maybe their own goals internally at their companies. Here's Charles. As you know, my, my bailiwick is more of advising industry actors and, and companies on how they incorporate environmental justice into their ESG and corporate sustainability efforts. And I'm curious, you know, just because many of our listeners are in that space, what sort of you know best practices or pieces of advice might you share with in-house practitioners who are seeking to incorporate environmental justice into their work? Well, I think, first of all, um, there are, um, you know, corporate policies that um, talk about the need to uh, be good neighbors and engage with their communities, and there are a lot of uh, best practices in terms of how to how to do community engagement, and and you know that um, starts with not just uh, doing it because you have to, or you just because you want to get a, a permit application through, or whatever, but to build real relationships with the communities and really understand the kind of issues that are there. And so, you know, so that's one thing that I would, I would say as far as, you know, uh, as uh, good practices to, um, to emulate. The second is, uh, you know, more and more, uh, it is really important to understand the kind of history of these communities and the historical legacy of how uh, uh, racism and, and other uh, systemic inequities have kind of played a role in shaping um, the ways these communities are organized uh, and, uh, you know, what kind of benefits and burdens uh, uh, they have 
uh, to deal with. And um, and so um, the the ability of, of companies to better understand the substantive concerns of, of communities before you know they make decisions is going to be important. And that's part and parcel of um, you know the kind of engagement and research that should be going on all the time if um, you know there's going to be sound corporate governance and on environmental and um, community issues. And Charles elaborated on ways that the agency could work with the business community to advance environmental justice. We need to work more with the business community to promote um, what are some really important good ideas in, in terms of social governance and um, sustainability and being you know, good neighbors. These are the kinds of uh, things that are going to maybe be important if we're going to uh, make um the kind of changes that we need to address environmental justice or end the kind of uh, 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 disproportionate impacts uh, in certain communities, it will going to make them uh, real and uh, long-lasting. And here's Matt's take. I think there is a huge responsibility uh, on all of us, whether we are private citizens working for private industry, whether we are advocates or academics out on the ground, or whether we are civil servants at any level of, of government, to recognize the history of environmental injustices, to recognize the history of structural and systemic racism uh, that has resulted in so many communities across the United States still struggling with uh, challenges of pollution with lack of access to whether it is economic justice or transit justice or a healthy food or a clean environment, that uh, those communities with those challenges did not happen by accident. It was not a matter of circumstance. Uh, it's not the fault of the community members for just not choosing a better place to live. We created these communities. We created uh, and accumulated the uh, negative uh, things that exist in their communities at a far greater preponderance than in other communities, in, in, in wealthier communities or whiter communities. Um, it is all of our responsibility to do something about that. Um, it is also really important, I think, that the private sector understand that even though engaging in these environmental justice conversations and making progress on environmental justice from their private sector standpoint is tough, it is uncomfortable, it means taking a seat at a table that you did not help to set necessarily, um, which doesn't happen all that often for private industry. I, I, I come from Houston, I advocated in Houston, I, I've sat in countless rooms that industry arranged, uh, and I know how uncomfortable it is for them when they have to sit in a room that they did not. Um, but that is that is where we're at in our society and in our government uh, in the United States today, is that it is everyone's responsibility to, to take your seat at that table. But it's important for them to understand that uh, the leaders of the environmental justice movement have for a very long time recognized that business and industry have played a major role in creating the injustices, but that we absolutely have to have their participation to seek justice. Mm -hmm. um, they have to be at the table. Uh, it is why, uh, like for instance, at, on the NEJEC, the National Environmental Justice Advisory Council, why we have representation of business and industry and always have on the NEJEC 
they have got to be in the room. They have got to be at the table. Uh, the power dynamic is different, again, from what they uh, would typically experience, um, but we need them there. And that's part of also uh, the, the core philosophy of the EJ program at EPA is that everything we do uh, is done from a collaborative problem-solving philosophy. And to have a viable collaboration, you have to have partners such as business and industry with you collaborating to identify the issues and identify the solutions based upon the community's vision, based upon the community's reality, and to come together around that community and in support of that community to try to achieve their vision of what a healthy, prosperous, safe environment looks like for the future of their community. Um, so I urge business and industry to continue to seek that out, to seek us out. I've had more conversations with more Fortune 100 companies in the last six months than I have <laughs> since I left Houston. Uh, I know there's a lot of interest. Uh, so at EPA, our EJ folks are here to engage with them, to help them uh, engage with their communities, to have hard conversations about the reality of what it might mean for private sector, depending upon what industry area they're in. Uh, but they are absolutely necessary partners to this, uh, and and we need them. We need private industry to 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 have the courage uh, to show up, uh, to take a seat, to open their ears and minds and listen, and really be ready to uh, uh, come to that table, uh, ready to deal in ways that uh, I think typically industry has declined to do for a very long time. Now, as we close out 2021 and look ahead to the next year, here's what our speakers see on the horizon for environmental justice from their position at EPA. It's hard to say to talk about like one thing in 2022 because, uh, you know, we've been discussing and, you know, we've all been hearing about the, the kind of massive uh, uh, change uh, in terms of transformational possibilities for environmental justice in 2022. And so, I don't know if there's one uh, thing that, um, you know, one central development, I think all these kind of feed on top of each other. Um, the one area that I think that, um, you know, we all need to, start to do is to better integrate environmental justice into the regulatory process. You know, and that has to do with uh, really knowing how to analyze for disproportionate impacts and and really um, address this question around uh, cumulative impacts and communities, getting a handle on how to how to uh, analyze for them and then how to kind of in integrate that into the way we do business. And I don't think there's going to be any one simple uh, solution to that, uh, but I think that would be like, you know, an area where, um, you know, all of us uh, should be uh, thinking about in terms of like an area where um, it's been really kind of hard, I think, in terms of environmental justice, um, a progress over the past uh, 30 years or so. The integration of environmental justice in the regulatory process has always been um, the area that uh, we've always found most challenging. So this is an opportunity to to look squarely at that and um, see if we can, uh, you know, make some headway there. Obviously, a lot of folks are watching New Jersey. They're the first state to have a very clear law uh, on cumulative impacts and, and making sure that their environmental permitting program 
um, starts to really, again, do the hard work of figuring out uh, how for the state of New Jersey, how they can issue permits or not issue permits um, based upon an environmental justice analysis um, that's really looking at the cumulative impacts of a community and, and trying to determine where is that disproportionality. That's something we're obviously um, very, very interested in at EPA. Uh, it's why uh, there are um, two different commitments uh, in our draft strategic plan, uh, which is out this fall of 2021 for public comment. Um, so we're hopeful that upcoming in you know, January, February, we'll be finalizing this and actually starting to implement it. Um, but there are two different commitments we have in there for advancing our understanding of disproportionality. Um, that was maybe the most critical term in the original EJ Executive Order 12898, um, this idea of disproportionality, but it's 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 it was probably the most important term, and we probably made the least amount of progress on really pinning down what do we mean by disproportionality? What do we um, what do we do with disproportionality? You know, what is the relationship? Uh, which I think is a very close relationship between disproportionality and cumulative impacts. Um, I think the biggest part of disproportionality is cumulative impacts. So how do we define cumulative impacts? How do we analyze for that? You know, how do we actually, once we've analyzed for it and we've described it and we've come up with a more consistent way of even just describing it, um, what is the application of that to our permitting system? What is the application of that to a NIPTES permit versus a PSD Clean Air Act permit? Right? There's, there's a lot of things we have to figure out there. Um, uh, what is the relationship of that understanding of disproportionality uh, when we uh, look at our formal agreements with states uh, who take or, or tribes that, that take over or stand in the shoes of EPA uh, with our delegated authorities? Right? How, how do we make sure that we're able to communicate a consistent understanding and application of these very critical terms so that it's not just EPA um, figuring out how to operationalize this, but we really are looking across the in entire environmental regulatory endeavor of the United States. And I, I think that's a really powerful way to start to uh, operationalize EJ itself um, I think environmental justice as a term or as an idea, um, even after being around for decades, you know, it's still received as a as a as a mystical, mythological, maybe frightening. Not maybe. A lot of folks are still frightened by it, right? EJ, it, it's mm -hmm. it's this clandestine thing that that is hard to pin down. It's really not, right? <laughs> EJ is about which communities are disproportionately burdened which had too much of the bad stuff and not enough of the good stuff, and they're more vulnerable to it. Um, and, and once you start thinking about it in that term, um, I think that starts to demystify for a lot of folks who are maybe reticent of, a, of approaching EJ. You know, if you can get them to think about, well, there, there are communities out there, right, that are, are getting too much pollution, right? It, it's probably not a safe place to live. Um, there's probably too many sources, or maybe there's only one source, but it's too great of a source for any one community to have to, you know, shoulder that burden. How do we make sure their health is being protected? How do we make sure they have access to a clean, safe environment? And once you start breaking it down in those ways, 
Um, I think a lot more folks, whether at the state level, local government, or, or, or our tribal partners, um, start to see, oh, okay, well, what, what, what can we do with that? You know, how can we look at the Clean Air Act differently? How can we use our authorities in the, in the Clean Water Act or in, or in FIFRA or in CERCLA or in RICRA to make sure that those communities whose health and environments are not protected to the same level as many other communities, you know, how can we, how can we advance their protection? How can we make sure they enjoy the same benefits that so many other communities already enjoy? And that's our show. Big thanks to Charles Matthew and the team at EPA for facilitating these conversations and sharing these important insights during this unprecedented time for environmental justice. As I noted earlier, we provided highlights from our chats during this episode, but if you're interested in listening to the interviews in full, please go to www.bdlaw.com where we have extended interviews available. Thank you all for joining us for this first year of Ground Truth. Wishing you all a wonderful end of 2021 and look forward to joining you again in 2022. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you, so please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.